I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Gary Snyder said, Poetry strengthens the community and honors the life of the spirit. Poetry Spoken Here exists to provide a place to join together with others, honor the life of the spirit, and let poetry speak to you. Today we're talking with Alice Delicio, and she is a poet living up in northern Wisconsin. She's the author of several chapbooks, such as Days We Are Given, A Blessing of Trees, and Conversations with Thoreau. And she's done all kinds of non-poetic writing also in the commercial world, in the business world. Uh, but we're here because we're interested in the poetry, and I'm so glad you could come here and do this, Alice. Well, thank you, Charlie. I'm delighted to be here. I have to correct one thing. I don't live in northern Wisconsin. I live in Madison. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, but I am up here to attend the dedication of Norbert Bly's Goop. And I was up here to go to the Clearing, which is a wonderful school in uh, Ellison Bay, Door County. Okay. I guess I was thinking like New York. If it's not the city, it's upstate. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take that. Yeah. Okay, I was wrong. It's the middle of Wisconsin. But the poetry is what counts. <laughs> and we're going to hear some poetry right now from the heart of Wisconsin. Okay, <laughs> so um, I have a selection here and they kind of jump around. But I was telling Charlie that, uh, I was telling you, mm -hmm. that we were we were working this week at the clearing on putting together the next manuscript and coming up with the missing poems. So I'm working on a manuscript about my father and his work on the railroad and when I was a child. This is different. And so I j I'll just read one from there and then one new one from there and then we'll look into some of the other ones. This is called Tracks and it is in my book called Days We Are Given. Tracks. You laid out our lives. Slide rule, protractor, stopwatch. Subdued childhood anarchy with sums and definitions. Even the bathroom had its slate of questions hung on a string beside the john. How far to the moon? How long would it take you in a spaceship at 2,000 miles an hour? We were your projects, you the engineer. Do you think you'll ever amount to anything you asked us? Teasing, cajoling? feeding us your own failed dreams for meat and bread. On Sunday afternoons, you took us along to walk the tracks, slick and singing in sunlight, stretching beyond sight to infinity, between the point of no return and where we played, sticky with tar and creosote, no spurs, no deviation. Could we do other than fail you, the tracks you laid so straight. What an interesting guy. I love the, the things hanging down. <laughs> oh, he, with was, the he was a born teacher. You know, I guess I never realized growing up that not all daddies had quizzes and, you know, the dictionary in the dining room was three oh. feet tall and we had to look up every word mm. we used. You know, it was, and I thought, well, that's it's how, how things are. <laughs> but, uh, there was there was one poem that I wrote that that sort of 
sort of captures it all, and I hope I can come up with that one because it's. Um, <laughs> he left a diary when he died. He left, in fact, he kept a diary from 1920, when he was about 29, to about 1980, and I have all those diaries. <laughs> so I'm sort of I'm sort of wallowing in material here, and that's why it's at the top of my mind right now. Um, did he comment in there about like the things he was doing? Like I put up questions for yeah. the kids today, or he said, "Yeah, I thought of a new way to phrase a math problem." Right, he did. Uh, he said, "I like to read Alice uh, a poem or two each night. I want them to like poetry as well as other writing." You know, he was always buying wow. us books. He library cards. Books were magic to him. And the irony of it is that he was a civil engineer and worked as a superintendent on the railroad and hated it. Mm. But it was the Depression. And that's how he could get a job, you know. Wow. So that's um, that was the story. It's kind of tragic in a way. But yeah. I didn't realize until he was gone, uh, you know, the lucky childhood I had with the, all yeah. this, the concerts and the music and the records. And, you know, this is, this is what life was, was all like with Daddy. At least that, so was, that a, was a good creative outlet for him. Yeah. And I think he was doing with... With the kids. In a way, I'm glad that I uh, that I had a chance that I finally decided to write this book because I didn't get around to telling him before he died. You know how yeah. wonderful he was. Anyhow, here's one more. On clear, cold nights, my father and I, swaddled and scarfed, walked to where the streetlights stopped, and he taught me the stars. The air, hard-edged and crackling, steamed with our breath. I tipped my head till my neck was sore and I was dizzy with distance, trying to enter that edgeless darkness, pierced by beams that started toward us longer ago than any ten-year-old could grasp. He told me their names, the bright North Star, Antares, Betelgeuse, Rigel. I squinted, imagining outlines of constellations against the dark, Canis Major and Orion Easy, the rest a tangle of Christmas lights, mm -hmm. long before space probes and astronauts, black holes, dark matter, long before the Hubble's peering eye, he filled my night with chariots and gods. Half a century later, he rides the interstellar wind, his gift unthanked, and his stars still anchor the night as this troubled rock spins on, wobbling, unsteady. So, maybe that'll thank him. <laughs> it's a great tribute. Some of the other things I've been uh, working on, you know, um, I'm now approaching, you know, uh, approach, well, I'm, I'm retired, and so there's dealing with the changes that all of that brought, and uh, and a second marriage, and all of the changes that that brought. So I have a number of poems about uh, about that, and this was one that sort of captures both of those thoughts. It's called clearing out. <clears throat> it's evening when he finishes and trudges up the basement steps. They're gone, he says. All my lesson plans and quizzes, the slides and overheads, Jesus, 30 years. Since he retired, 
They've hunkered in their boxes, the folders stuffed with formulas, stilled like sleeping cats, waiting to yawn and stretch, waiting for students to listen, to blink and smile. I get it. He says, it's like I've given up some part of myself, something that made me me, you know? As long as the files were there, I was a teacher. Now, the recycle bin is full with 30 years that cannot be replayed. We need some music and a strong scotch. Dark comes down early in November. Yeah. But the idea of getting rid of books oh, yeah. is a terrible That's, thought. Isn't it? Isn't and it? I'm very resistant. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> but there is an element where these things are a part of your identity. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was uh, going to class with, with Norbert Bly, um, he suggested, I wrote a couple of poems about Thoreau, who of course is one of my heroes because I'm very much into the environment. I completely and agree. Nature. Thoreau is almost always right. Yeah. Maybe he's always right. Always he's right. He's just great. Always right, yes. Yeah. And so um, he said, well, why don't you do why don't you do a poem about Thoreau? So I, uh, uh, my, my third book was printed, uh, published by the University of Wisconsin Press, and it's called Conversations with Thoreau. And uh, it started out with, uh, I think this was my first Henry poem. <clears throat> I came across, across a quote from Thoreau that said, My greatest skill has been to want but little. And I thought, well, that's kind of a pompous little thing to, you know, pompous thing to say. He was very full of himself, as you know, although he was wonderful. Anyhow, so my, my poem is titled, Questions for Henry. <clears throat> How little, Henry, didn't you hanker for a haunch of venison and a pint with the local lads? A fierce game of bowls on the lawn, pummeling the backs of the winning team? A ride on that newfangled train, racing at 30 miles an hour, with the wind licking your cheeks, ruffling your whiskers? Or how about a warm and breathing body next to yours? Yes, dandelion fluff is nice enough in its place. But does it really set your pulses tingling, light up the nerve ends like shorted wires? Does it answer that craving for a gentle touch, the sensuous message human fingers etch on skin? You're listening to Alice D'Alessio on Poetry Spoken Here. <clears throat> Just a lovely poem about a lovely man, Thoreau, who was, as you said, full of himself. <laughs> Are you going to do another uh, Henry Bob? I do. I'll give you another one. This is called Walden Pond Restoration. I finally got to Walden Pond after I wrote most of the poems in the book. But uh, I'd come across a piece in the newspaper <coughs> excuse me, about how they were restoring Walden Pond. And I thought, oh no, why don't they just leave it alone? Like you know. But of course it's a tourist attraction now. So um, I wrote this poem. First they covered the concrete bathhouse with cedar shingles. Restoring the area to a natural state, they said. <coughs> <coughs> I, 
I imagine you perched on a branch. This is Henry I'm talking mm-hmm. to. I imagine you perched on a branch, bemused, your spirit destined to inhabit whatever woods is left. Bathhouse? Concrete? Walden? It's become synonymous, you know, with the quiet life of contemplation, as iconic as Shangri-La or Camelot. We are desperate to make the pilgrimage, to be infused with your serenity. But we're told the parking lot for 350 cars is often filled by noon. The concrete wall around the pond is lined three deep with fishermen, while nearby stands hawk snacks and souvenirs. When you wrote, I love my fate to the very core and rind, we believed you, and we wanted a bite of that same melon. Why did we have to consume it, seeds and all, rip up the vines and poison the garden? It turned out it wasn't such a bad restoration. It was still beautiful. Um, I think I think when I was there, it must have been before they did anything. It was still I don't pretty natural. When it was, but yeah. it was it was just a, nobody was there, and it seemed odd because you know you could see really? buildings nobody and all was that. there. Wherever we, I don't know how big it was. I don't remember, oh, no. but there was nobody there when we were there. Oh, Maybe in the eighties. I would have liked to see know. it when nobody was there. Did you see his, his the little reconstruction mm. of his house? No. Oh, I don't. I, maybe we were on a funny side of no, it. I don't I even know. We just went to Walden Pond. It's uh, probably followed been, the map. Yeah, <laughs> it's pro- This is. It's become. You know, he's become iconic. They have a big conference, a thorough conference there every year, where people come from all over the country, maybe all over the world, to talk about Thoreau. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many things can you say? <laughs> You go to the library and there's simplify. All, yeah, that's simplify, it. simplify. <laughs> no, so I. That's the irony of all of that. Was one of the things yeah. that inspired these poems. Well, now here in Wisconsin, is it John Muir? Yeah, there's some sites related to him. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you been to those? Uh, I'm trying to think, I'm not so much. Remember. Not so I'm much. I know where they are. Curious. Yeah. Yeah. Conversations with Thoreau. This was the title poem. Because I'm tired of myself, I say, tired of the fretful gnawing in the brain like rats in a landfill, all the news is bad. Even the snow sifting hypnotically on weeds and fence line doesn't stifle the static, shut it out, seal it off. I need other voices to repeat the sweet banalities. The... Hey, how's it going? I call everyone I know. We talk about weather, cooking, kids, books. Do lunch. See a movie. Have a drink. Do you know what I'm saying, Henry? Weren't there times when contemplation of that mucky pond and trees got wearisome? And you found yourself stopping in to chat with Emerson, having a cup of tea with Bronson Alcott? Or perhaps... And I can only guess, your thoughts were less on loss and more on reverence. <laughs> so you're going to... That's a treat, hearing about Thoreau. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, no, you, you did say you're more than a tree poet, but you are going to give us a 
Oh, I'll give, you a, I'll give you a I'll give you a you, are you would you rather avoid it? <laughs> this is still my favorite book because it's so pretty. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. <clears throat> Enter the forest. Find the path where rain drips from beechlings, brightening their greenest green, trembling the twisted ties of yellow moccasin flowers. Pay homage to cedars robed in lace, their spongy carpet of velvet dusk. Breathe their incense. Lay hands on ironwood and linden, each with its secrets. Come with me. I will show you the way. Here in this temple, we study the Druid Fathers. Learn to grow old proudly. Chant the psalm of the hemlock. We will hold white limestone in our hands. Recite the only prayers we know. <clears throat> Do you have trees uh, around your house? Oh, yeah. We live on the edge of a conservancy. Oh, great. I, it, yeah. I just, we look out at the trees all the seasons. We have a marsh with cranes in it. We just feel oh, so lucky. Wow. It just, you know, happened that... Your archetypal Wisconsin. Yeah, archetypal. <laughs> yes. We talked about archetypes a lot this week, I guess. You know, I figure being of Celtic background, I mean, D'Alessio was my first husband's name. Mm -hmm. I'm English all the way back. And I think it's the Druids in my background. It's know. the Druids. <laughs> I wrote a lot about Druids, too. <laughs> Between them and the Vikings, I consider the them, Vikings. I consider them Europe's two most interesting groups. Yeah. In fact, here's a this is here's a poem called "Druid's Daughter." Behind, beneath the draping spruce, alone but not alone, those blue-green needle-filtered sunny days, soft wind, tall father, on layered carpet, crunchy with years of pungent duff. My dolls and I chase fantasies, guiding winged horses over mountains to fairy tale forests, riding the wind to someplace strange and wild where brothers cannot tease and unwashed dishes won't invade my dreams. And later, grown leggy and stubborn, I abandon my retreat to scale and straddle stout branches of sycamore outside, apart, above, beyond a witness at comings and goings of roller-skating bullies and bikes and dogs, and grandmothers with endless schemes for idle girls. I learned to trust the rough-skinned the rough limbs, their rustling conversation, scrabble uneven ladders skyward. I loved to climb trees when I was a girl. <laughs> when other little girls were busy playing dolls, I was climbing I'm trees. That's great. <laughs> I have a feeling of a running through kind of theme. And, and I can actually, if I think about it, I can piece it all together because my father took us to parks and uh, out canoeing and things like that as yeah. much as he could. He was very, very busy when I was growing up. And that's the amazing part. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, he came from a, uh, a dirt-poor family in Appalachia. His father could barely read, mm. and it was a coal miner. Mm. And uh, my father uh, worked in a steel mill and paid his way through Cornell and got his degree. And so I, I feel like he yanked us up from the 
from the mines. From the mines, single-handedly. Wow. And he had so, such eclectic interests. Yeah. That's so interesting. Oh, well, he wanted it all. You know, he was when he was a boy, he didn't get all of that. And so, uh, you know, he, as I say, he, you taught us well what you had, what you had hungered for. The early uh, interests were sparked by him, and then uh, later, and of course, he loved poetry. And the one about reading my father's diary talks about where he had found a poetry book for us for a dollar in Wilmington, Delaware, and he brought it home, and he said, I want the kids to learn to like poetry. And then he mentioned that I would sit and listen to the poetry and my brother asked too many questions. <laughs> and then uh, later, he would pay me a quarter for every poem I would memorize. And so I, you know, I was into stockpiling money. Yeah. And I, I took him up on that. <laughs> and uh, that, <laughs> it was a wonderful, I feel very, very fortunate. I did tell you, though, that I do now, because I'm an environmentalist, worry a lot about the world, as we all do. And I have a poem here, maybe I should close with this one because it's dark, or maybe I shouldn't. It's called Earth Overshoot Day. The news is bad, and is not new news, only more stifling, overwhelming, dispiriting. Recycling plastic bags won't stop the glaciers melting won't cancel logging in the Amazon. My paltry contribution is not enough to feed one Somalian child their haunting eyes or lower the temperature, fill the dried up stream bed. It's too late, they say. All this year's resources already gobbled. The carousel is overloaded and the music jingling to a stop. That's too dark. I don't want to end there. <laughs> you find a happy one. Okay. I'll, I'll read one about Manhattan. I, after college, I worked in, in Manhattan for four years, and I loved it. I worked for Esquire magazine. That's, that's cool. It was cool. It was very cool. And I was, you know, I was sort of thinking, we could live here. We could live here. My husband at the time was in medical school. And uh, so it's always fun to go back and walk around and think what it was like way mm -hmm. back then. <clears throat> this is called Revisiting Manhattan. We discard inhibitions, no one knows us, in giddy gawking. Enter this cacophony of humanity, a potpourri of color, shape, and style, like flotsam washing up, digging in, taking root. Join the shriek and clatter, the steaming stew pot of this city. Since we lived here, it got bigger, or rather, taller. It can't expand in girth or length, this tiny slab of rock, jutting impossible verticals, comic book towers that seem to sway in the wind. We shade our eyes, look up to where the sky is carved into smaller, ever smaller, blue patches. Thinking, but not saying, that what sticks up the highest is always the target. We sigh with Pagliacci at the Met, where elegant ladies slip, sip, sip wine at intermission in glittering lobby. We admire brownstones on cross streets, frost, frothy with cherry blossoms. 
We could live here, I used to say, and the long avenues I walked then, agog at the windows of glamour and glitz, out of reach. Dinner is veal marsala with porcini and too much prosecco, and we walk till our legs rebel, sampling this small principality, empire, fantasy of an alternate life that beckoned years ago, whispered could be and faded so quickly to couldn't. All right, that's a good bad one. We're here on Poetry Spoken Here, talking with and hearing the poetry of Alice D'Alessio. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here, and now we're going to turn to a subject that helps explain why some poems are so visceral, so strong, so emotional, that they just seem to grab us very deeply. Robert Bly, in an essay, talking about intensity in poetry, offered a bit of an explanation. Robert Bly. The purpose of powerful assertion at the beginning of a poem is so that one's deeper emotions will be called out. In our culture, flooded with mediocre art, it's perfectly possible to write poetry your whole life without ever being asked to bring forward the intense emotions that are somewhere inside of you. Those emotions that love to be seen. Those emotions we are each afraid of. Those emotions that will curse us and poison us if we don't honor them by speaking them. Those emotions that will bless us if we do speak them. Now, I'd like to give an example, at least I think it's a very intense emotional uh, scene depicted in this poem by Ted Kuzer, who was the poet laureate of the United States about a decade ago. He lives in Nebraska, where he writes quiet, intense, perceptive poems. During his work life, until he retired, he worked for an insurance company. They had torn my face off at the office. They had torn off my face at the office the night that I finally noticed that it was not going back. I decided to slit my wrists. Nothing ran out. I was empty. Both of my hands fell off shortly thereafter. Now at my job, they allow me to type with the stumps. It pleases them to have helped me and I gain in speed and confidence. Ted Kuzer, they had torn off my face at the office, which appears in his book, Sure Signs, New and Selected Poems. A second example of uh, this kind of intense image comes from James Laughlin. He's the wonderful person who founded New Directions and made so many uh, poems and, and other bits of literature available in translation in English. At any rate, Lachlan's poem, which I had the fortune to record with him a few months uh, before he died, was called Step on His Head. We're going to hear that right now. This one is, has been anthologized a lot. This is about the relationship between a father and his children. And this is called Step on His Head. Let's step on Daddy's head, shout the children. 
my dear children, as we walk in the country on a sunny summer day. My shadow bobs dark on the road as we walk, and they jump on its head, and my love for them fills me all full of soft feelings. Now I duck with my head, so they'll miss when they jump, and they screech with delight, and I moan, Oh, you're hurting, you're hurting me. Stop, and they jump all the harder, and love fills the whole road, but I see it run on through the years, and I know how some day they must jump when it won't be this shadow, but really my head, as I stepped on my own father's head. It will hurt, really hurt, and I wonder if then I'll have enough love. Will I have love enough when it's not just a game? James Laughlin, Step on His Head. I'd call that a fairly intense, impressive image, and you can just see it, and... Uh, it's, it's a very interesting way to talk about that parent-child relationship. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetryspokenhere. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com. 